your Bible and open up to John chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some ushers. They can make their way up, get a Bible to you. But John chapter 7. So when I was 10 years old, I wanted to go outside. I wanted to help my parents. I wanted to start the family car. I'm 10 years old, and I haven't spent a lot of time behind the wheel. But I mean, honestly, how hard can this be? I've seen it 100 times. I'm just trying to start the car. We had this little blue Honda Accord. And I get into the driver's seat, I open the door, sit down, stick shift, manual transmission. My my feet can barely even reach the pedals. But all I want to do is start the car. What I didn't know, it would have been very helpful. What I didn't know was the car was left in first gear. I didn't even know what first gear was. So I go out, I'm, I'm determined to start the car, turn it over, turn the key, the whole car took about a, a foot, it, it lurched ahead, and then just suddenly stopped, it died. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, I'm scared, I'm confused. I, I don't really honestly know why the car just moved. I mean, I'm just trying to start it, but the thing moved. So being a guy, I mean, I would do what any guy did. I, I give the car more gas, right, guys? If the car doesn't start, just give it some more gas, and it'll start. So I, I'm sitting there, I, I, my foot is on the pedal, Turn the key the second time, the car starts, and it's still in first gear. So it takes about half a second for this little blue Honda Accord to peel out across the driveway to fly through our garage and crash into the side of the house. It was not a good day, the Carlson house. I learned something that day. I learned what neutral was. Never before, I I didn't know what neutral was. I'll never forget What neutral is, the point of the story, what I'm talking about today, when it comes to Jesus, there is no neutral. You believe or you don't believe. It's true or it's not true. Either Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is equal to the father. He is one with the father. Either Jesus is God, it's true, or Jesus is just a man and it's not true. John chapter 7, thousands of people are flooding Jerusalem. Here's a picture of uh, the courtyard by the temple. This is in Jerusalem. This is like a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. Nobody is here. Think of, of this picture plus this, Woodstock. I mean, there are thousands of people flooding into the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it is a mob crowd, shoulder to shoulder, just crawling with people. This is a week long festival. I mean, this is camping out. This is a party for seven days. I mean, this is a great time. The, the biggest event of the Jewish calendar, the biggest event of the year, everyone's here. This is where it's at. And they're all asking this question. Is he the one? Is Jesus really who he said he was? Is this true? Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? People are gathered They are just waiting. I mean, there is a buzz in the air. And the Jews, the Jews were not neutral. You see, the the Jews, they they have been waiting. They have been searching their heritage, their history, this community. They are waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Is it now? Is this Christ? Is this really happening now? Is this Jesus? Everybody's wondering this question. When it comes to, the, to who Jesus said he was, either he, he's God, either it's true or it's not. 
He's really just a phony baloney. He's an imposter. He's guilty of blasphemy because he thinks he's God. He claims to be God. He says he's God, but he's just a man. He's not God. The Jews were not neutral. Either this man, Jesus, either he is the Messiah, and they're going to make him the king and put him on the throne, or they're going to take him outside the city streets because their law requires them to kill him. We've got to understand the implication of Jesus's words when he says that he is the Messiah, that he is equal to God, that he is God. Either he's going to be made the king or he's going to be killed like a criminal. The Jews were not neutral. They are wondering, they are searching. The whole city is in a buzz. They are talking about, is this the promised Messiah? Has God stepped down from heaven And if so, this is so much better than we ever expected because now this is God with us. God is not coming to to save us by sending somebody else, a prophet. This is God himself to rescue us, to redeem us, to ransom us, to save us. It just doesn't get better than this. Here it's at this festival, the festival of of tabernacles. Here it's at Woodstock where there's thousands of people asking the question, This is our text today, John chapter 7, starting verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. After what? Well, after chapter 6, Jesus went about in Galilee. So a quick review, chapter 6. Chapter 6, Jesus claimed to be sent by God to be on a mission greater than Moses. God sent Moses to free the Israelites from Egypt. But now God has sent his son Jesus to redeem and rescue the world. See here, Jesus is making himself, comparing himself to to Moses, and he's greater than Moses. Jesus claims to actually be be God. And everybody believed, right? Chapter 6, everybody bought into it. Everybody knew it's true. No. The followers, the fans, the crowd, the mob, the mass, everyone walks away. All the lowercase capital D disciples, everyone is gone. They're not buying into it. Jesus has left from thousands of people. Jesus has now left in chapter seven with 12 guys, 12 disciples. And even one of these guys doesn't even believe he really is the Messiah and will betray him at the end. So after this, he went about in Galilee. He would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus has lost his fans, he's lost his followers, he's lost a crowd, and now he has a death sentence hanging over his head. He's claimed to be God. The Jews do not believe he is God. They think he's, he's delusional. He's just an arrogant criminal. Who is this guy claiming to be one with the Father? He is an imposter, blasphemer. He should be killed. Verse 2. Now Woodstock... Right Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed him. I mean, it's one thing to have the mob right? The crowd, the thousands, the, the fans. It's one thing to have them abandon you and walk away. But his own brothers didn't even believe he was the Messiah. His own family disbelief. I mean, the bottom line, Jesus has not lived up to the expectation of the Messiah. If Jesus really is the Messiah, 
The thought was, well, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to storm the city streets. He's going to stand on top of the temple. He's going to take over. The Jews were looking for a, a leader, not this spiritual teacher. They don't see this is the one. This is the Christ. Jesus is completely failing their ex- expectations of who they thought the Messiah would be. And so from a, a horizontal, from our perspective, the man perspective, I mean, right now in his ministry, Jesus is a flop. I mean, he has failed. He is losing more people than he's gaining. Most of his disciples have walked away. His own family, his brothers, don't even believe him. But from a vertical perspective, from God's perspective, Jesus is exceeding every expectation. He he is doing exactly what the Father has called him, has asked him to do. He's obeying the Father. He's not influenced by the crowd. He's not swayed by what people think. He's not uncomfortable by having people walk away and turn their backs. He's okay with having his brothers not even believe. Jesus is doing everything the Father has asked him to do. I just go back to this. I just think about this. His, his own brothers didn't even believe. I mean, he's like 30-some years old. He's been living his whole life with his family. and His brothers don't believe. In fact, his brothers, while he was alive, never believed. It wasn't until after the cross, after the resurrection, when Jesus comes back to his brothers, that for the first time they believed. It's kind of hard to argue with your dead brother who's just come back to life. He is the Christ. Jesus went his whole life, and his brothers never believed. I mean, he's just utterly failing the expectations of what his brothers, of what society, of what the crowds thought he should be. His own family, embarrassed by him. His own family, turning away and walking away. Hey, if you have an unbelieving family, Maybe this is your story. Maybe you can relate. If you have someone in your family who, who doesn't believe, maybe it's grandparent, cousin, sibling, spouse, child. If you have someone in your family who a little bit disappointed, who you haven't lived up to their expectations, who, who has abandoned you, who has walked away, who's embarrassed by you, who doesn't agree with you, who argues and debates with you about your faith, Jesus did too. He totally gets it. Jesus knows what it's like to live your whole life with an unbelieving family. If that's your case, I think the thing we learn from Christ himself is it's hard. It is a lifelong job of believing in Christ, of pursuing after Christ. Not even Jesus could make his own family believe. It wasn't until the end of his life they came to him. Hey, if that's your story, your job with your unbelieving family. This is a lifelong process. This, this is something you commit to. It begins with one conversation at a time. Just one person, one conversation. It just takes sharing one minute of the difference that Christ has made in your life and then going from there, pursuing Christ, believing Christ, helping, asking questions, bringing the clarity of who Christ is, who he said he was, to your unbelieving family. It's, it's hard. It is not simple. There's no easy way around it. That's what Christ did his whole life. Verse six, Jesus said to them, my time has not come, but your time is always here. It's not like Jesus is saying, well, it's 12 o'clock 
And my time is not until five o'clock, so my time's not here. Sorry, guys, I'm not part of it. No, Jesus is saying my, my time, my opportunity is not here. See, Jesus is smart. He, he knows if he goes with his brothers, if he goes up to the feast with his brothers who want to make this like circus parade and draw a bunch of fans and show off Jesus to the world, the Jews are going to take note. They're going to see. They're already trying to kill him. They'll arrest him. Jesus knows where this is going. And so his time, his cross, his opportunity has not yet come. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you but it hates me. Still true today, isn't it? The world hates Christ. Because I testify about its works are evil. You go to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. I mean, it kind of seems like a little bit of a contradiction here where, where Jesus is like, I'm not going, and then he ends up going to the feast, right? Now, all it is, there's a change. All Jesus knows, he, he knows he cannot go with his brothers. They're going to cause a commotion. It's not going to end well. So Jesus tells his brothers, you go to the feast. I'm not going. His brothers go, and then Jesus comes up by himself, privately, alone. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? I wonder if they were asking his brothers, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. There's this muttering. There's this debate. There's this confusion about who Jesus is. Some say he's good. Some say he's leading people astray. There, there's, this, there's this muttering. There's this quiet chatter about who Christ is. But because of fear, nobody wanted to talk openly about Christ. Also true today. The world hates Christ. Still true. It's still hard to talk openly about Christ. Still true. Uh, why is it so tough to talk about Jesus? Let's just think about this. I mean, why is it so hard to talk to a friend? I mean, is it just not polite? Is it intrusive? What about at work? I mean, is that just not politically correct? Is it not appropriate in the workplace? Why is it so hard to talk about Christ with friends, with family, with workers? What makes it so tough? It's the fear of man just like the Jews were, were afraid of each other. Here for us, we are afraid. It's the fear of rejection, fear of what are people going to think? What are people going to say? How are people going to look at me? How are they going to judge me? It's this fear of man that cripples us, that, that silences us, that shuts our mouth so we don't even speak openly. It's hard to talk about Christ. It's hard for me. I know what it is. It is hard to talk about Christ. I get this too. But what are we really afraid of? Are we that afraid of what people think? Or are we that afraid of what people will say? When was the last time you had a, a real, meaningful, uh, spiritual conversation where, where life and faith, right, and, and Christ and Scripture all come together 
If you're in a small group, small group does not count. When was the last time you had a conversation like that? Pastor Doug has challenged us to take our conversations to the eternal. When it comes down to it, without Christ, there is no redeeming value. There's nothing good to even talk about. And yet it's so hard to even talk about him. What are we afraid of? One conversation, just, just one person, just one minute of sharing the difference that Christ has made in your life. Let's keep going. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I love this. Here's the Jews. They, they, they marvel. They're, they're just baffled. They're confused. Dude, how do you know that? How do you do that? You've never even studied. They're talking to Jesus. I've got to be thinking Jesus in his mind is like, I have spent eternity surrounded by the Trinity. I know a little thing about theology because we're just talking about my dad, right? I mean, Jesus' father, God, has wrote this book, what the Pharisees, the Jews are studying, what everybody is wanting to learn and understand. Jesus is like, it's not that hard. I don't need to study. My father has taught me everything that I need to know. It's not that tough. You want to talk about creation? Sure, I I, I was there. I, I helped with that. Thank you very much. I was a part of that. You want to talk about the Old Testament guys, the patriarchs, Moses, all those guys? Yeah, yeah, we hang out. We're friends. I've shown up a couple times. I've been there. I've done that. It's not that hard to talk about it when, when you've lived it, when your father has taught it, when you've shared with this. But the Jews, they, they just don't get it. I mean, seriously, for the Jews, who is this guy? Seems a little bit of a smart aleck, a little bit of sass, a little bit of sarcasm coming from, from Christ as he's talking, as he's pushing back on these people who are questioning his identity of who he is. I mean, they just don't get it. I mean, here's Jesus from their perspective, this, this poor, this, this uneducated, this construction worker, you know, the son of a carpenter from this little dusty town in Nazareth. Seriously, who is this guy? They have no idea. They just don't get it. We know the full story. We know what's going on here with Christ. Verse 17. Hold with me in this. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it? Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, If on a Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the book of John is really simple. 
Some of it is just clear. It's straight to the point. It's easy to read. It makes sense. Other parts, it's about as clear as mud, right? We're tracking as we're going through this. Hard to understand. Different levels Jesus is talking about. If you ever had like a Bible reading amnesia, that's what I like to call it. It's when you're, you're reading through scripture, you're reading through line by line, verse by verse, you're reading all the way down every single word. You get to the end of the page and you're like, I have no idea what I just read. Happens to me all the time. Hey, let me break this down. Let me just kind of quickly go through what, uh, what's going on here. Jesus is in the temple. He, he's teaching in the temple. Jesus says, why do you want to kill me for one miracle? Okay, so I healed a man on the Sabbath And I know the law of Moses says you can't work on the Sabbath, but you do circumcision on the Sabbath. So how can you be mad at me? I mean, if if circumcision is just like one small part of the body, why can't I make a whole man's body well? The guy's been paralyzed for 38 years. Why am I going to wait till tomorrow to heal him? Isn't me healing this man's whole body greater than your tradition, right? You're greater than your tradition of this little snippety snip snip of of circumcision. Uh, Jesus is saying, be careful how you judge me. I I come from my father. If you have a problem with me, you can take it up with my father. Didn't go over real well. 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is. Speaking openly. It's funny how the the people were afraid to speak openly. Christ isn't afraid to speak openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? Well, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. The debate is about where Jesus comes from. They're like, we've seen your brothers We've met your mom. I've seen your house in Nazareth. You come from Galilee. There's no way you're the Messiah. They have no idea who they're talking about. They have no clue. God himself has stepped down from heaven, is standing in front of them, that they're talking to the Christ. They have no idea the identity of who Jesus really is. 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me? You know where I come from. He's saying, you, you think you know me? You think you know where I come from? But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. In scripture, in Greek, there are two words for this idea of the word know. One word is intellectual. I can know something with my mind. I can know the facts. I can know the trivia. I can intellectually know something. Now, the other word, know, refers to this experiential knowledge where you encounter it, you experience it, you're you're a part of it. You're actually living it out. And this makes sense. Okay, let's say I'm, I'm looking outside my window and I see some snowflakes falling down. Mentally, I know it's cold outside. It's cold enough to see snowflakes. But it's completely different if there's a blizzard, three feet of snow, 
It's 20 degrees. I take off a coat. I start running around outside, rolling in the snow, doing these snow angels, icicles all over my face. I mean, there is a difference between that kind of knowing, of experiencing, of encountering the snow and how cold it is on my skin compared to looking outside the window and, and knowing it's cold. That's what Jesus is saying here. He, you, you intellectually, you with your mind, you you know some facts about God, but you've never experienced him. You've never lived your life with him. You have never encountered the one true and living God. You have never been outside embracing, knowing, pursuing who this God is. You know some stuff, but you've never met him. I'm standing here before you, and if you don't know who I am, you don't know who he is. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him. Again, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour, his opportunity, had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I just love watching the father, this interplay between the father protecting the son. This isn't the first time Jesus has caused trouble in the temple. And and here again, again wanting to arrest him, wanting to kill him, and yet... Not a hand is laid on Christ. I just love seeing this. No matter the situation, God the Father protecting God the Son. The cross is not ready. The opportunity has not yet come. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. We've seen in John several times, Jesus is talking on different levels. He's saying in six months from right now, in six months from now, I'll be at the cross. And my opportunity, my time will come. And so if you don't know me now, if you haven't encountered me, if you haven't believed in me now, while you are still living here on the earth, after the cross, I'll be in heaven. And if you don't believe now, you're never going to see me. You're never going to come to me. You're never going to find me because you're never going to be in heaven. Your chance is now. If you want to believe, this is it. Our time on earth right now, there are no second chances. You believe or you don't believe. If you don't believe, you'll never see Christ in heaven. This is all or nothing right now. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, the the Feast of Booths. I mean, this is like the Woodstock because people for this whole week are living in these little shelters, these tents that they've made. And this is the biggest, the most popular feast of the year. Everyone is there. Everyone within 20 miles is required to be there. I mean, this is it. This is the party. This is where it's at. And here, every single morning, there was the highlight of the week. Every morning, every one of the seven days, the high priest 
And the priests, they would march from the temple courtyard to the temple carrying this golden pitcher of water. And they would get to the base of the altar and they would pour out this water as a sacrifice. There was huge symbolism, huge meaning for the Jews when this happened. There was two things. First, it's a ceremony. It reminds the people of how God provided water as they were traveling through the desert, leaving Egypt, going to the promised land. This is huge for their history. And it's also a celebration. This was happening here right now, like in October. It's the end of the harvest. All the crops have been gathered. And so this was a celebration honoring, praising God for the rain during the season. They're living in a desert. And so any rain that they got, it was a praise to the Lord who sent the rain. And so here, there is a ceremony of this golden pitcher marching across the stage. And every morning it was poured out at the base of the altar. Everybody's there, thousands of people packing this place out. Everyone wants to see it. There was this phrase that if you were actually close enough, if you were actually able to see the water poured out, people said this was the best day of your life. I mean, this is huge. This is where everybody is. This is where everybody wants to be. Everybody's watching this. And every morning there's this marching, there's this procession. And as a priest, they get close to the temple. All of a sudden the trumpets start blasting. And there's a choir, a choir within the temple would start singing. Everybody would start waving their hands in the air. I mean, this, this is it. This is where you're at. This is an amazing, just a festival a memorial of, of what's going on as Israel is honoring their past and praising God for what he's provided in the year. I mean, do you get to the picture? I mean, there's just a buzz in the air. This place is hopping. I mean, this is about to explode. These people are electrifying. I mean, this, this is huge. This is what people are waiting for all year. This is the event they're waiting for. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. And cried out. Jesus stops the ceremony. Jesus stops. All eyes are on him. Everyone's watching. Everybody's there. And Jesus stops the ceremony and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water last and greatest day, the biggest feast of the year, all eyes on him with a death sentence already hanging over his head. Here, Jesus stops the ceremony. He stops the parade. Everybody's watching him and he says, come to me and drink. This is Israel. This is the Middle East. Things haven't changed much. It's still a desert. This was a sandbox. And here Jesus is asking the obvious question. This isn't really even a serious question. He's stating the obvious. Is anybody thirsty? Everybody's thirsty. They live in a desert. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Homes didn't have running water, right? I mean, it's not like somebody went to their, to their fridge with their big gulp, 64 ounces, right? Gets crushed ice and cubed ice and cold filtered water. No, water was work. Every single day going out to the well, pulling up heavy buckets of water. Water for your crops, water for your animals, water for your family, for your herds. I Googled this. Do you know how much time, uh, do you know how many gallons it takes to feed a family of four with one camel, 
one cow, and one horse. 50 gallons of water a day. Camels drink a lot of water. That is a lot of work. Here, Christ is offering survival. Come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, come to me. There's no work about it. Just come to me. You don't have to go every day filling up your heavy bucket of water. Just come to me and drink. This water is survival. This water is offering eternal life. Here, using the festival, the seven days of, of carrying the golden pitcher of religion. Here, Jesus stands up. He stops it. He fulfills it. He says, come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, if you want to survive, if you don't want to work, if you want eternal life, come to me and drink. Verse 39. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is not Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no hands were laid on him. I'm glad we know. Does Jesus come from the offspring of David? Check. Does Jesus come from the little town of Bethlehem? Check. They have no idea who they are talking to. They have no idea the presence that they are standing in is the presence of God himself. They have no idea that they are encountering the incarnate son of God who has stepped down from heaven to live with them, to dwell with them. They have no idea who this Jesus is and that he really is who we said he is, the son of God. Verse 45 the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officer said, no one has ever spoken like this man. Okay, these officers, these officers aren't like rent-a-cops at Kmart. These officers are Levites. They are like professionally trained. Their job is to know the Bible. And they say, no one has ever spoken like this man. Nobody talks like this man. Nobody knows what this man knows. We're not arresting him. Who is this man? Is he the real deal? Is he the Christ? Verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities, have any of the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Pharisees are just mad. They're name-calling now. Uh, they're just making fun of the, the, the crowd, just laughing at the mob, saying they don't know anything about the Bible. Forget you, Levites. You don't know what you're talking about. These Pharisees have no idea who they're standing before. They have no idea that they're encountering Christ himself. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, who's one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, huh, are you from Galilee too? 
Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Making fun of Nicodemus, name-calling Nicodemus. In all of chapter 7, Nicodemus is the only person by name who actually stepped up, who actually took a side with Christ. I mean, here, Nicodemus, he is a Pharisee in front of the other Pharisees, in front of his peers, with his reputation hanging on the line, with his profession, his job hanging on the line, Nicodemus steps up and takes the side with Christ when the other Pharisees are questioning him, wanting to kill him, wanting to arrest him. Nicodemus believed. Nicodemus had had the faith to believe there is no neutral. You believe or you don't believe. It's true or it's not true. Either Jesus is who he said he was, he's one with the Father, he's equal to the Father, either he is God or Jesus is just a man. Nicodemus believed he is God. In this room, there are two types of people. First person is someone who does not believe. The opposite of faith is unfaith. It's not having faith. It's not believing. The opposite of faith is disbelief. So that means there's a difference between disbelief and doubt. See, with doubts, there's questions. There's uncertainty. It doesn't all make sense. You, you don't understand everything. You can have doubt. God's okay with doubt. God is okay with you having some uncertainty, not having all of the answers, still having some questions. God can handle your questions. God is fine with doubt, but God can't handle disbelief of not believing. So for us, for you, if you are in this room, if you have questions, if you have uncertainty, if you have doubts, that's okay. See, God can handle that. The Bible talks about faith and even a small amount of faith. A childlike size of faith is enough. See, it's not the size of our faith that's important. It's the focus. It's who we put our faith in. And so if we even have a a small amount of faith that's focused in a big God who we're believing in, that's enough. So even if you still have questions, even if you still have doubts, God can handle that. That's okay. The question is, do you have faith? Do you believe? Do you even have a small amount of faith, enough to believe Jesus is who we said he is? He is the son of God. He has stepped down from heaven in the incarnation, has poured out his life on the cross so that you could live. That's the gospel. The gospel is really simple. Jesus poured himself out so that we could live. Question is, do you believe that? The second kind of person in this room, this is most of us, it's people who believe, people who already have the faith, and and we might not totally understand everything, and all of us, we still have uncertainties. We don't have it all figured out, but we do have faith. We know the main thing. We know Jesus is the Son of God, that he has died for us. We have confessed our sins, and God has forgiven us. Here's my question for us. If you believe, just as Jesus poured himself out for us, are we, are you pouring yourself into others? 
See, here's what I mean. It's, it's not about this. It's not about this, this golden picture. It's not about the religion. It's not about the festival and tradition and the ceremonies. It's not about this. See, in incarnation, when Jesus stepped down from heaven, took on flesh, became God himself, when Jesus became like a jar of clay, an earthen vessel, an incarnation just like us, a man with a human body, when Jesus stepped down from heaven and became like us, and then when God poured himself into Christ, fulfilling our religion, making it all about a relationship, making it about the incarnation of coming to him. That's why Christ came, to offer himself so that we could come to him, so that we could survive, so that we could receive this free gift that he is bestowing, that he is giving. And then Christ on the cross poured himself out, poured out his blood for us, When Christ went up to heaven after the cross, he left us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that he has given to us, that is now indwelling us, that God himself is now residing in us if we believe. We have the gift of the Spirit. So my question for us is, if we have the gift of the Spirit, if we have the Holy Spirit, God in us, are we pouring ourselves out? Are we pouring ourselves out? into others. Families, around the dinner table, what are topics that come up at the dinner table? Are you talking about God? Are you talking about faith? Are you talking about Christ? Are you pouring into each other the difference that Christ has made into your life? If you're not talking about it at the dinner table, it's not going to come up any other time during the week. Families, are you talking about Christ at the table? Parents, families, maybe you have young kids at home. Are you pouring into your kids? See, for some of these young kids, you have the opportunity to share the amazing Bible stories with them for the very first time. They've never heard it. Don't pass that up. Don't let somebody else do that. You, parents, be the one pouring into your kids. Or maybe you're on a sports team. Maybe you're at the field. Maybe you're sitting in the bleachers. Maybe you're a coach. Are you pouring into each other? Is it just about the wins and losses? Or is there something more to the opportunity of being around like-minded people and sharing Christ, giving him the glory on the field, off the field, Are you pouring into other people? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe you just go to Starbucks. Maybe you're just hanging out. You're talking about Christ. You're encouraging each other. Are you pouring into someone? Are you having significant, meaningful conversations? One minute of sharing the difference that Christ has made in your life. Are you pouring into others? Holidays are coming. It's time to get out the uh, the fancy cups we use once a year, right? Are you pouring into your family? Around the turkey table, maybe you have unbelieving family. What are you thankful for? What's the point of Christmas? Are you pouring into family members? 
unbelieving family, this is your opportunity. Are you sharing about the difference that Christ has made in your life? It's not hard. It takes one conversation. It takes one minute of sharing. There's also the greatest generation ever, my grandma's teacup. Have you ever sat with someone older than you? Have you ever sat with a grandparent, heard their story? Have you ever let them pour back into you? Have you ever sat with grandparents, listening to their story, listening to the spiritual history of where you're coming from? They have so much to offer. Do you know where you're coming from? Small groups. You show up to small groups. Are you looking to take? Are you looking to pour? Are you looking to pour into group members? If you're not in a small group, get in a small group. Are you looking to invest in others, to pour into others? Because it's sure not about this. It's sure not about the religion. It's sure not about the golden picture. God has fulfilled this. He's replaced this with the relationship of Christ. He has poured himself out, stepped down from heaven to become God living with us like us. He's poured himself to us, giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not that so that we would consume it and hide it and hoard it. God is a giver. Are we givers? Are we pourers? Who are you pouring into? How are you pouring into? It's not that hard. One person, one conversation at a time, one minute of telling the difference that Christ has made in your life. With the Holy Spirit, he's empowered us. He's equipped us. We have God himself living within us. We have the word of God at our side. We are fully equipped, ready and prepared. We can't let the fear of man scare us away from pouring into others. Are you sharing about Christ? Let's pray. God, right now, if there's anyone who doesn't believe, who still has uncertainty and questions and doubts, that's okay. The church is the best place for that. Relationships and people is where it's at. Pray we'd be a church helping, directing people in their spiritual walk with you. God, if anyone does not know you, does not believe, today's the day. Let's not wait. God, for us who believe, you've called us to be givers, to be pouring out. I pray we would do that in simple ways, in spiritual conversations, in practical everyday life, that we wouldn't be so afraid, that we wouldn't be silenced by fear. God, let us stand up just like Nicodemus, a reputation on the line. Let's put our guts out there, God. Let us open up and share for you. You are so good. You are a giving, giving.